You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Now we're going to kick off week number 22 through uh, of the book of Acts. If you're new to Rev Church, what we like to do about 90 to 95% of the time is study through books of the Bible verse by verse. We feel like that is the best way for us corporately together to study scripture on Sundays. We also believe it does two things for us. It forces us to deal with really difficult subjects and scriptures that we have to teach on when we go verse by verse. And it keeps us from abusing certain subjects that humanistically speaking, we would be up here every single week preaching on. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off in Acts chapter 13. If you remember last week, I explained to you guys, and we've mentioned this several times, that Acts chapters 1 verses verses chapters 1 through chapter 12, uh, really the focus is on the ministry of Peter. In Acts chapter 13, it's almost like we're starting a whole new book of the Bible because in Acts chapter 13 all the way to Acts chapter 28, it is completely on the ministry of Paul. Peter's in the background now, and we hear all about Paul. So we're going to start in verse 13. We looked at verses 1 through 12 last week. We got 39 verses of Scripture this week, uh, verses 13 through 52. But in the first service, we had a great time, and I think we're going to have a good time today. Now, Paul has been a Christian, as we start verse 13, for probably roughly about 8 to 10 years. Okay, But what we're getting ready to see is we're getting ready, number one, to see Paul's evangelism strategy when he enters. uh, There's a piece of confetti that just fell down. Thank you, student ministry. Way to go. Give Pastor Brandon a hand. Hey, hey, it, we use this sanctuary for students and our way and everything, and sometimes confetti falls. We got ping pong balls that like multiply around here like rabbits. We don't know what happens to them. That's for the games. But, but you're going to see Paul's evangelism strategy from here on out. I uh, probably won't touch on it much in the coming weeks, but every single time Paul enters a new town, he has a strategy where the first place he goes is to the Jewish synagogue. And it's very logical that he would do that because, number one, Paul is a Jew. Uh, He studied under Gilmiel. I know that sounds like a wizard from the Lord of the Rings, but that was actually a very prominent Pharisee of the day that Paul actually studied under. So we know that he would be welcomed into the synagogues. And also, it's important to note that the Jews held a monotheistic view of God which was very unusual for the time because most cultures and most people at this time did not have a monotheistic worldview. Also, what was important is the Jews would see Paul and Barnabas, as you're going to see today, they would see them as representatives of the Hebrew God instead of an other unknown deity, so to speak. And so he goes to the synagogues first when he hits a city, and we're going to see him do that today. Uh, in verse 13. Everybody ready? Say, I am. Got a lot of scripture today, uh, but some good stuff. So, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. First verse just points something out that you're going to need to keep in your mind because in a few weeks it's going to come back up. And that is the fact that John Mark leaves them at this point. Now, there's a lot of speculation on why John Mark left. Was he homesick? Was he tired? Was he scared? 
my speculation is totally different than what most commentators think. And it's based off the phrase, Paul and his companions. In the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13, we see Paul and Barnabas referred to over and over. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Well, in chapter 13, from here on out, it's referred to as Paul and his companions. In other words, Paul becomes the main missionary leader from this point on. And I've just got an inkling, not that preachers have egos and that we like to be number one and we like to preach longer than the other and we like to outdo each other, but I've just got this kind of sense that maybe there was some leadership strife and friction that took place. Maybe there was some jealousy uh, that John Mark, who, by the way, is the cousin of Barnabas, uh, maybe got a little upset because now Paul's calling all the shots. He doesn't really like that. And uh, as you're going to see in a couple of weeks, Paul and Barnabas split as a result. Let's continue in verse 14, though. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this does not need to be confused with Syrian Antioch. Can you guys put that map up for me real fast? I know I did it out of order last service. But right now, as we told you last week, Paul is on the first of really four, but some think three. But the prison missionary journey was actually one, I think. He's on the first of what we call his missionary journeys. And last week, we talked about the church in Syria, Antioch, and how crucial this church was to the mission of the gospel being spread throughout the world. Well, the Antioch that they're in now is not Syrian Antioch. They've been through Salamis and Paphos we talked about last week. Now they're in Perga, and they're going to Antioch. That's in Asia. Does that make sense to everybody? So it's like, uh, you guys ever heard of Philadelphia, Tennessee? Raise your hand. Philadelphia. That's a totally different Philadelphia than Philadelphia, where is it? Pennsylvania or whatever. I just know the Steelers aren't that good here lately, so I don't know. They remind me of Alabama football. I don't know, you know. We love you. We love you. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. Don't confuse that with Syrian Antioch, okay, guys? On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Remember, this was their strategy. This is why they came. Now, what you're getting ready to hear over the next several verses is, for all intents and purposes, this is Paul's first recorded sermon. He's been a Christian for 8 to 10 years. Maybe he's preached before, but we know that this is the first recorded sermon to a large group of people that Paul has ever given. And I'm just going to tell y'all, it's a really good sermon. I mean, here I am 2,000 years later preaching a sermon on the sermon that Paul gave. It's good, and it's his first one. I can remember when I first started preaching, y'all, um, it was not good. <laughs> now, I, I know y'all think that, like, I'm the greatest communicator that the world has ever known now. Thank you for the giggles and the laughs. That boosts my confidence greatly. Thank y'all. But when I first started preaching, it was pretty bad. I can remember one of my first sermons that I ever gave. Um, we had a lock-in. If you don't know what a lock-in is, it's the Christian, like, Protestant equivalent to purgatory, okay? It's like, 
you know, you're in this place, you don't know if it's heaven, you don't know if it's hell, like, you know, kids are getting saved and that's great, but you're stuck and you can't go nowhere, so you want to die, you know what I mean? So if you've ever been at a lock-in and been an adult leader, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, we had this lock-in and there was probably 150, 200 students there when I was a student pastor. And uh, I can remember, like, I just used to do some goofy stuff on the stage and on the platform when I was preaching. And one of the things we did at this uh, lock-in was we had some games uh, to kick off the service, much like they do in Rev Students and Rev Men and Rev Ladies and uh, RYA and just about everything we do, just kind of icebreakers. And uh, this just gives you an idea of how bad I used to be at communicating from a platform. Well, we were doing a trivia game on the screen, and when someone would get the answer right and yell it out from the crowd, of course, I had like a prize I would give them, like a gift certificate or a gift card or I don't know, maybe it was a candy bar or something like that. And so uh, we're playing this trivia game, and, and I asked this question, and this girl named Savannah, who loves me still to this day, even in spite of this story, okay? We, we have a good chuckle over this. This girl named Savannah, uh, she yells out the answer, and I'm like, all right, she got it. I didn't even know her. This was the first time I'd ever met her, okay? All right, she got it over here. Come on up here, Savannah, and get your prize. Get your prize, Savannah. Come on, Savannah. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. What's wrong with you, Savannah? Your leg's broke or something? Get up here and get this prize. Come on, everybody. Give her a hand. Come on, come on. And I just keep pouring it on. like, golly, you're taking forever. Well, I couldn't see, but it turns out Savannah was in a wheelchair, okay? Y'all aren't laughing. Y'all feel really bad for me, don't you? You're like, oh, gosh. It's so bad. I was really bad. <laughs> now, she thought it was funny. We're still Facebook friends, at least to this day. I hadn't talked to her in forever, but they made fun of me forever about it. It was like a goofy thing that was you know, funny. She didn't get offended or anything. But I could just remember trying to communicate even with games how bad I was when I first started. Paul is awesome, though, y'all. You're going to see as we go through this sermon that it reads more as an outline than it does really a transcript. And you're going to recognize, if you were here for Acts chapter 3, when we preached through Acts 3, there's a lot of similarities to Paul's sermon and Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 3. Peter's sermon really was like a transcript, but Peter gave an Old Testament defense of Jesus, and Paul's going to do something similar. He's going to show the vein of Christ in the Old Testament and how it ultimately led to our Savior and led to Jesus. And so does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Uh, verse 16, he starts at standing up. Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Stop right here just for a second. There are several things as we continue to read through the book of Acts and preach through this book of the Bible, and you can see them in Paul's letters, 
that are absolutely foundational to the teachings and the messages that Paul would preach. I want to give you three of those things that are very prominent here. And when we put this up on a chart on the screen, I know y'all like my charts. Good idea to take some notes. Good idea to snap a picture. Because if you're ever listening to a sermon, if you're ever reading a Christian book, if you're ever watching someone try to communicate the truth of God's Word, you want to make sure that these three things are prevalent in their messages, okay? It's going to be nothing new. We've talked about this stuff. But number one, look at Paul's preaching style. Paul preached Christ. Paul preached Christ. We talk about this all the time at Rev Church. If we get up here and just impart a whole bunch of knowledge on you guys and y'all learn a whole lot, but we don't share the gospel each and every week, we've completely failed as a church. That is the Great Commission. It's all about the gospel. How many verses did it take for Paul to get to where he's mentioning Jesus? Eight verses. He gets to it quickly and he gets to it effectively. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, Paul penned the words, Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament in what we call epistles. They were letters that were written to groups of people or to an individual. Guess how many times Jesus is mentioned in Paul's letters? The name Jesus is mentioned 213 times. The name Christ is mentioned 375 times. Paul preached Christ. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says this, I announce my text and make a beeline to the cross. This is what Paul is doing here. He's preaching Christ. Number two, Paul preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. How many times have we read in chapter 13 so far, if you look at the totality of chapter 13, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the, we've told you guys, like this, this book should not be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because every time something awesome happens, they're full of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is leading them. So he preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. Verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So Paul preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, Paul preached Scripture. Notice, he's referring back to Old Testament Scripture. Every single thing that Paul says is based off the truth of God's Word. And every sermon you listen to, hey, it's great to get up here and tell funny stories about how I was telling a girl to get up here. And, you know, it's great to have jokes. Those things are, are needed in public speaking. I get that. But really the base of it is Scripture. It should be rooted in God's Word. Timothy, Paul was discipling a young preacher named Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think we're going to go through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus next year as Rev Church. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells this young preacher... I mean, he just lays it out there, preach the Word, preach the Word, preach Scripture. So make sure you find those things in the sermons you listen to and the books you read. Let's continue in verse 24, though. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Now, this is where I may get a little fired up because he just starts laying the gospel on him, and y'all, it gets me excited, okay? Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? 
I am not the one you were looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Listen to this. This is just great stuff. So thick. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I've become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. What's he talking about with decay? He's getting ready to open it up. Verse 36. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. That's David, a mere man. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You should have a little giddy up in your step after hearing that Rev Church. I know it's early. It's 10.06, but that is good news. Amen, Rev Church. Now, in this next verse, this one singular verse, Paul is getting ready to say something extremely shocking, extremely earth-shattering to Jewish people that put their faith and follow, faith in and followed the law. This is really a prelude to where Paul expounds on this idea when he writes the book of Romans. Listen to what he says in verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Paul is saying this. Maybe the laws of the Old Testament have confused you. Maybe you get to it in your Bible reading plan and you're like, man, I ain't even reading Leviticus and Numbers and all that. That's too confusing. I don't even want to go there. What's up with that? Paul is speaking directly to the law and how it is entangled and compares to the grace of God. And Paul is saying, hey, the law is good, and it served its purpose, but it could never save you. What Paul is really doing here is he's talking about the function of the law versus the function of grace. And, and to put it simply, he's saying that the law reveals the condition that we all have, but the law could never remedy that condition. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. The law shows us what we are, but it can never remedy it. Now, it is impossible for anyone to follow 613 Levitical laws that are found in the Old Testament. But I want to point out something that's kind of interesting that I landed on when I was reading through Leviticus a few months ago. Even if you are like the holiest person ever and you did everything you could and followed those 613 Levitical laws, 
Do you know what Leviticus chapter 4 teaches? It talks about what's known as unintentional and unknown sins. Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2, I'd encourage you to go read it. Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. What Leviticus chapter 4 teaches us is really what the totality of the law teaches us. And that is, there's sins that you do that you don't even realize you do. You're not even aware of them. You get home and you think, man, I'm Jesus Jr. Look at me. I've done good today. Meanwhile, you've done things that are offensive to God and have the potential to separate you from God. That's the whole point of the law. When you get into those 613 laws and get confused in the Old Testament, just know this. All it was doing was showing us our condition that we're broken sinners. The law functions kind of like a mirror. I've got a mirror here. How many of you guys, before you came in to church this weekend, you looked in a mirror? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Some of y'all ain't got your hand raised. We can tell, okay? And so, I'm just saying. When you look in a mirror, it shows you your condition, right? And if you guys are anything like me, there's certain times of the year that I really am disgusted with my condition. Around the holidays, you know what I'm saying? Like 4th of July when I get done, you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, I'm like, what's up with my condition? What is this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what is this? And this mirror shows me that condition, those things that are disgusting and gross that I don't like about myself that that really I want to fix. But how crazy would it be to take this mirror and go, now I'm going to use this mirror to remedy my condition? I'm going to get this off here, you know what I mean? Like, this mirror here, some of y'all would be like, man, you know, like, this mirror, I'm going to get it on my face and get all these blemishes off and wrinkles off and stuff like that. That's not going to do anything. How insane is that? Because all a mirror does is shows your condition. You're going to have to take other steps and do something different to remedy your condition. This is what Paul is saying about the law. The law is good. It shows everyone that they're broken sinners. But it cannot fix you. It cannot fix you. There's only one person that completed something that can fix you. The law is not a bad thing. Hey, It's not bad to, to try to follow God and do the things he tells you to do. But if you're in here and you think that's what's going to save you, you're sadly mistaken. Only putting your faith in Christ and surrendering everything to Him can remedy your condition. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. These poor people. Poor people that follow the law. It's crazy. We've got a lot of people that follow the law still today. They only go to church on Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists do this, you know. Can't eat bacon and shrimp. You know what I mean? Like, Man, we need to pray. If that's you in here, be set free, man. You know, like we're doing a low country bowl on our staff retreat this week. I've been looking forward to it for months. You know, I couldn't imagine. No shrimp, you know. God made that stuff clean. Amen, Rev Church. I know. I know. I'm ADD. Let's continue. Verse 40. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Now he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. 
He says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So by quoting Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is encouraging them to find complete forgiveness of sins, justification through faith in Jesus in spite of their inability to follow the law. In other words, in spite of their inability to follow rules and please God. Same thing we struggle with today. Anybody come short all the time? Anybody ever feel like Paul? The very thing I hate is the thing that I struggle with and I continue to do even though I know it's wrong. I have thoughts I shouldn't think. I do things I shouldn't do. What is wrong with me? He's encouraging them and saying there's a much better way. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas, so he's done with this sermon. Now watch what happens. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, they want to hear more about this grace stuff. They want to hear more of this gospel. What are you talking about? Like the law can't save us? We don't have to follow all these rules? Tell us more about this. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now watch what happens in verse 45. We're going to make a point of this. And again, you're going to see this over and over every time he enters a new city. This, this real similar pattern pops up. When the Jews, the highly religious people, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Let me give you a side note real quick. The word for jealousy that's used here that these religious leaders have for Paul is the exact same word that's used in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, when the Jewish leaders were jealous of Peter. And my big point in this is you need to understand this, and I'm going to be very transparent with you about something that I struggle with. Peter never fit in with religious people once he got saved. Listen to me. Paul never fit in with highly religious people once he met Jesus. Read through the ministry of Jesus, and you will find that Jesus himself, I'd encourage you to just go read one passage. Read Matthew chapter 23, one book of the Bible. Read the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus clearly never fit in with people that followed rules taught by men. As a pastor, I've struggled with this for nine years, really since I've been in ministry, really since I became a Christian. I look at the landscape of Christianity, especially in America, and I see all the denominationalism, and I see all the rules and I see all the traditions, and I see all the things that are lifted up, and I've always felt like, even to this day, I don't fit in with religious people. I do not fit in. I've struggled with that. Whenever I'm evangelizing to somebody, evangelizing, evangelizing, I said that weird. We in Crossville, baby. Everybody say evangelizing. Evangelizing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're going to go get some deer jerky at Bucky's, you know. Whenever I'm evangelizing to people and sharing the gospel with them, if I invite them to church, oftentimes I'll get a response like this. I would come to church, man, but I'm just not a churchy person. And I hope this isn't true because I've been in ministry for so long that I'm not becoming a churchy person. But I usually look at them and say, that's fine, man. I'm the pastor and I'm not a churchy person. Religious people, when they come to our church, their brains explode. You know what I'm saying? They're like, What? I just want to give you freedom in here if you've ever felt like that. If you've ever like gotten saved, put your trust in Jesus, you're trying to live for him, but you see 
religious people and the hypocrisy of a lot of what the church does. And I'm not calling out any denomination. I'm just saying there's a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, men have really taken Christianity in a lot of instances and made it something it's not. And you've ever felt like, I'm just not down with that, man. I just don't fit in with this, we worship traditions and we got to do it this way and denominationalism and all that stuff. You're in good company. In fact, I would say to you that if you do fit in with that, it may be a red flag because Peter, Paul, and even Jesus did not fit in with religious people. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. Verse 45, let me read the whole thing again. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heap abuse on them. Simple point. Have you guys ever heard that law of nature? I'm not a science guy. Maybe we've got some science nerds in here. We've got a lot of nerds in here. We established that last week at Rev Church. Everybody, everybody remember, remember that was real uplifting, wasn't it? I sent you all away with confidence. But you ever heard that law? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You ever heard that before? That's not just for the laws of nature. That applies to spiritual warfare as well. In other words, whenever God does a work, you will always see the devil do a work to try to combat the work of God. And you need to understand this at Rev Church, that if you are going to try to discover your purpose and make a difference and be used by God, it is not going to to be easy. When I baptize people, I've told you all this before, but when I baptize people now, I used to just look at them and say, I'm so proud of you. You're taking your next step with God. That's great. I still say that to them, but the last thing I say to them before they get baptized is I look at them and I go, man, I I love you. I'm so proud of you. This is awesome that you're doing this, but I want you to know something. All hell's getting ready to break loose in your life the next couple weeks because you're doing what God has told you to do. You want to be used by God? It ain't always going to go smoothly. Average church plant lasts about two or three years. Over 90% of them don't make it past year five. And I coach church planters all the time. You know why they don't make it past year five? Because planting a church is hard. Doing anything for God is going to stretch you when you discover your purpose and start to make a difference. I'll sit down with church planters and they'll say, man, I just don't know. It's not going real smooth. Things ain't going great. I don't know if God's in it because it's not going smooth. And I'll look at them and go, the fact that things aren't going smooth and aren't going great probably is evidence that God is in it. Because if nothing's wrong, something's wrong. My favorite proverb, when there's no poop in the oxen pen, there's no harvest being had. It says that in Scripture. We looked it up, didn't we, Brandon? Pastor Brandon, we looked it up. That's like my version, but you know what I mean? So if you're going to do something for God, just know there's going to be obstacles and it's going to be tough. This phrase, they heaped abuse on them, means that they weren't just contradicting Paul, but they were blaspheming. In other words, they were going to disagree with what he said no matter what he said. No matter what he said. Could you imagine watching the Super Bowl and during the Super Bowl, one of the teams coming up to the referees and lodging a complaint and saying, we're trying to win this game, but we can't do it because the other team is trying not to let us score. 
We got confetti coming down like crazy today. Is that good luck if you have a piece of confetti fall on you? I don't know. Oh, we keep, we keep trying to score, but the other team won't let us. They keep trying to score on us, and we can't stop them on defense. No, that, that's totally insane because the true test of strength in football is having the ability to move forward when the other team is trying to stop you. Listen, some of y'all going through stuff. Some of y'all been through stuff. Some of y'all are struggling. Some of y'all are discovering your purpose, making a difference for God. Some of y'all are trying to live for God in your marriage. Some of y'all are trying to parent as a godly parent, and you've made this switch. And I need you to know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to follow Jesus and do things for him. But remember, the true test of strength is having the ability to move forward even when the enemy is trying to stop you. Does that make sense, Rev Church? Say amen. Let's continue. Verse uh, 46. Got a few more verses left. Y'all still with me? Say I am. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. What Paul says at the beginning of his rebuke to these religious leaders is very interesting. And there's an interesting phrase, since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. The big idea there is, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that Jesus has never sent anyone to hell. They've sent themselves to hell because they've decided not to follow Jesus and put their trust in him. That's the idea here. The idea is I've preached the gospel, you've rejected it, so it's not on me anymore. The blood's not on my hands, and it's not on God. It's all on you about whether or not you're going to make a decision to follow Jesus. He continues in verse 47, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. Shook the dust off their feet. Uh, You may remember that phrase, Jesus said that. He told his disciples, when you go into a town and you're rejected, leave the city, shake the dust off your feet. Uh, That was a Jewish custom when Jews would travel. They would travel through pagan cities, and when they got home and were getting ready to go into the temple to worship God, they would shake the pagan dust off their feet because they didn't even want to bring pagan dust in in honor of the Lord. What this means when you shook the dust off your feet was essentially, I'm breaking fellowship with you, and I can't have anything to do with you anymore. And this is what the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Barnabas to do. Leave them alone. You know, I've learned in life, and I've learned in ministry, and I believe that this is biblical. There's just one passage that sometimes the best way to help someone is to walk away. Let me say that again, because some of y'all need to hear this bad. Sometimes the best way to help someone is to walk away. Question, did Paul want these Jewish leaders to get saved? Absolutely. That was Paul's desire for everyone. Did God want these Jewish leaders to get saved? 
Did the Holy Spirit want what it says in Timothy for all of them to meet Jesus? Absolutely. But notice, even though their desire was for them to be saved, the best thing at this moment for Paul to do with these Jewish leaders was shake the dust off his feet. Paul offers a sharp, very quick rebuke, but he looks at them and ultimately vows to carry the gospel to people that, as Jesus said, have ears to hear the gospel. In other words, he's not forcing it. He's not forcing it. Sometimes the best thing you can do is walk away. Does that make sense to everybody say amen? Let me give you an example. And, and man, I'm going to make everybody mad now, okay? So look at your neighbor and say, it's coming, okay? So I'm getting all up in everybody's tater patch today, okay? If you're dating, dating, now if you're married to someone and you get saved and they're not saved, Peter tells us clearly that our example should minister to them so that they can be saved. So it's not an excuse. Don't say, I'm unequally yoked. I'm just going to divorce this person because they don't love Jesus and all that stuff. You minister to them. You've been put in that situation for a reason and God will use that. Uh, barring any abuse or anything like that, of course. But if you're dating someone and both of you are lost, but one of you gets saved and the other is still lost, you walk away. Does that make sense to everybody? You walk away. You share the gospel with them, but you got to walk. Hope they get saved. But there's no, in other words, there's no such thing as missionary dating. You know, you're not like, well, I'm just going to keep dating him. And, and maybe he'll get saved if I keep dating him. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of pain in your life and a lot of heartache if you keep waiting on that. If you're in here and you have a... Every situation is different, but hear me out because this is a, there's a pandemic of this, no pun intended, with COVID, right, uh, in America today. But if you're in here and you have a 40-year-old son that lives in your basement still, and you enable him, and he doesn't have a job, and he's never grown up, and he just smokes weed every once in a while and hangs out with his buddies and plays video games all day, you probably need to walk away. I love you, but it's time to put your big boy pants on, grow up, and become a man. Listen to me, parents in here, and family members. Listen, at some point when you enable someone, you start to sin. You can play dumb at first. Well, I gave them $100. I didn't know they were going to buy you know, drugs with it. But at some point, you know exactly what they're going to do. So at some point, enabling becomes sinful on your part, and you need to walk away. Is everybody with me? Say amen. amen. Okay, that's enough of that. Y'all love that point. Okay, so we will, uh, we will move on. We'll move on. Let's read the last verse of Scripture, and I'll be done. Verse 52. I love this verse. Because notice what's happened. The super religious people, they reject them. They want nothing to do with them. But the pagan Gentiles, they're the ones that are like, we love this message. We need Jesus. It says in verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Some of the Jews, mostly Gentiles. They got saved. And as a result of them putting their trust in Jesus and getting saved, that's what we culturally say, they got saved, right? They're going to heaven now. They've been justified by Jesus. Yeah, they're going to try to follow the law and do what God tells them to do, but they know that's not what ultimately is going to get them there is their works. 
as a result of them getting saved, they're full of two things, joy and the Holy Spirit. Some of you guys in here, I'm going to close with this. You've been taught a lot of different things that happens as a result of you putting your trust in Jesus and being saved. I dare say there's men and women in here that have been going to church, been involved in Christianity, so to speak, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And you've been taught maybe that following Jesus and getting saved, the main attribute that's going to dominate your life is going to be fear. I'm not saying fear is a bad thing, okay? We get that, the fear of the Lord. But that is going to be your driving force. Oh, no, I'm going to get a whooping from Dad, okay? Some of y'all have been taught that following Jesus is all a social thing. Like you're not going to fit in if you don't accept Jesus and follow him. And, you know, we're in Crossville, Tennessee, off Genesis Road. How much more biblical can you get than that? We're in the buckle of the Bible belt. So if you don't at least say you're a Christian here and say you go to church, you're kind of sort of on the outs in a sense. By the way, with the younger generations, that's totally changing, and y'all need to know that. If you're a Christian now, talk about, man, doing hard things. We should be praying for our young people because for young people to follow Jesus in their schools and have a a godly relationship that honors God, not be having sex and everything like that is like almost impossible today. Y'all know that, right? Everybody say amen. What was I talking about? Okay, okay. Joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Some of y'all have been taught these crazy things like it's legalism. You start doing this list of things. You stop doing this list of things. And maybe some of those things aren't even bad. But what we want you to know at Revolution Church is that when you put your trust in Jesus, the two things that will be prevalent in your life is joy and being full of the Holy Spirit. Joy. I didn't say happiness. I said joy. You can have happiness. I prayed with somebody last night with a group of people that had joy in the midst of someone passing away from cancer. You can have joy in the middle of the hardest things in your life, not happiness, joy. And secondly, you can be full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit, just so everybody knows, we we try to hit on this whenever we can because there's so much bad teaching about the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's similar to what it says in the book of Ephesians when it says walking in the Spirit. Those are really interchangeable, being full of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. The book of Ephesians says uh, don't be drunk on wine. Instead, be drunk on the Holy Spirit. The idea is... When you drink too much alcohol, the alcohol consumes you and controls you, controls your emotions, controls your thinking, causes you to do things that otherwise you would never normally do. Instead, let the Holy Spirit control you in that way. Give the Holy Spirit the freedom, have a radical obedience that it will dominate your emotions, dominate your mind to cause you to do things in the power of the Spirit that you would never normally do. Does that make sense to everybody? So what I'm saying is it's not some kind of weird voodoo thing where it's like, you know, some people have the Holy Spirit and they're filled with it. Some pe- Being filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there if you're saved. But are you going to give the Holy Spirit the freedom to control you and do what he wants through you and have the peace and have the direction that the Holy Spirit can give? Joy and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you so much for every single person that is here, God. Uh, Lord, I just pray for this church. You're doing so much. God, you are moving in massive ways. we got more people than ever coming, and it's the middle of summer. Half of them are gone. But God, it doesn't mean anything if we have a whole bunch of numbers and nobody is full of joy and nobody is being led by the Spirit. 
So Lord, I pray for your people that you would give them the strength to be obedient so that they could be effective. I pray for the people in here that are struggling, going through it, facing obstacles, don't know where to turn. Nothing's easy right now for them. God, I pray that you reveal your will to them and give them comfort and peace that only you can give. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people say. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.